that, that video is a nightmare. I don't know. I don't know that. We, we usually do comedy or drama, but not horror. Okay, that, that was horror right there. I, I don't know. That, whew, that leaves a knot in your stomach. Um, we are in a downturn, an economic downturn right now in the country. Um, it's been going on for a while. You can read about it in the papers and see it on the news or on the Internet. It pops up all over the place. Been through a few of these in my married life. We... We had a, <clears throat> when, in 1979 when I got married, I, I was working for General Motors in Southgate where I grew up, and we were making Cadillacs, big, huge Cadillacs, and the gas crunch hit, and so people didn't buy Cadillacs like they were before, and so I got laid off. Went from making 1600 a month, which was a lot when your rent is 140 a month, you can you could get some perspective. Went from sixteen hundred a month to four hundred a month. Because it was a month after we got married. We got married in June, this happened in July, and God decided it's time for Randy and Cindy to learn about faith. And as we go through each of these downturns, I've learned God is up to something. He he's working in my heart. I know he's working in your heart through what's going on. That doesn't make it any easier. It does, it does give perspective and shapes the way we handle things, but it doesn't make it any easier. Polls and surveys tell us that the stress of finances creates all kinds of collateral damage in our lives. Marriages, families, uh, our health, we lose sleep, we get addicted, we get depressed because of our finances. The general reports are easier to deal with than the prayer requests we receive. You know, we take prayer requests on the connection cards and they come in and I pray over those on a weekly basis. And when I can put faces to what's going on in the general economy, that's when it gets to my heart. People I know and love who are going through this and struggling with these things, uh, that, that really grabs you. Most of us are in a financial position where we have to think about money all the time. Uh, we're constantly making decisions related to our finances. We can't just spend without thinking about it. Um, I pay the bills for our family. And I'm very grateful for God's provision because one of the things God taught me is it doesn't matter how much is coming in, he's going to take care of me. Cindy and I both learned this as we went through that first economic downturn, the first month of our marriage. God is faithful. He always provides He's always met our needs. I'm very grateful for God's provision. It's not him I'm worried about. <laughs> it's me. It's my perspective. I rarely have a week go by where I am not dreading wading through our finances or stressed about our finances in some way. And so gaining the right perspective on our money and our possessions is crucial to our emotional well-being. The Bible has a lot to say about money, a, a ton. Um, in fact, 15% of Jesus' recorded words have to do with money and possessions. He had a ton to say about it. So this message series is going to be an attempt to hit the highlights of what the Scripture says about money. 
and possessions in very practical terms. Before we launch into the series, I want to I want to step back and I want to answer the question or at least briefly answer the question, why is the topic of money so important to God? If Jesus spent more time talking about money than any other single subject, why did he do that? And you you get a glimpse in his conversations that he had with people. In Luke 19, he had a conversation with a man named Zacchaeus. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through there. There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. So he's a Greek man, worked for the Romans. He was chief tax collector and he had a lot of money. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. He was curious. He had heard about him. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. This reminds me of a song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. If you grew up in Sunday school, you know the song. Okay? I'll just share it with you for those who haven't heard. You know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Classic. Classic song. But I cannot read through this without that coming to mind. And if your kids are in Pathfinders, there's things being built into them. Things they're going to remember, I, I promise you. And anyway, this is a classic. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into the sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And Jesus came to the place. He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your home today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, now this is they, or the religious leaders of, of the day, the religious people. When they saw it, they all grumbled. They, they were a bunch of crab apples. They were upset because Jesus was spending time with this sinner. They said, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They put, they put themselves above everyone else because they felt like they were so religious and so righteous. And they looked down their self-righteous noses at this man. <clears throat> Jesus loves sinners, which is a good thing because I am one. He, he loves to hang out with the chiefest of sinners, and that got to the religious establishment the whole time he lived. That, that just really bothered him. But anyway, uh, Zacchaeus, it says Zacchaeus stood... And said to the Lord, behold, behold, said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and I have def- if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. He's referring to his faith. And we'll get to that in a minute. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You see Jesus' heart in this conversation that he had, his heart for, were, is for those who are lost to God. And that really is, CIB, that needs to be our heart. We need to be trying to find people who are disconnected from God, help them get connected, and reap the benefit of knowing and walking with him. But Jesus said an interesting thing, didn't he? Today, salvation has come to this house in response to him giving his money away. Now, what Jesus isn't saying He is not saying that you have to give half of your money away to the poor in order to have salvation. Salvation is a right relationship with God 
that brings eternal life. It's through grace, God's grace, and our faith. This happens by faith alone. We put our trust in Christ. We put our trust in him. And we decide to rest on him and not live life our own way any longer, but to live life his way. That's what brings salvation. What Jesus is saying is this. He is showing the kind of change that occurs in a person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. He's he's highlighting the kind of shift, a radical shift in our attitude toward money and possessions when we choose to follow him. That's what he is doing. This is the kind of fruit that grows when you bury your life in Jesus Christ in faith, when you give your life to him in faith, that kind of change occurs. He will bring a radical change in your view of what's important. So if you're considering following Christ, that's one of the things that's going to happen. He's going to begin to radically change your view of what's important in life. And he's going to lead you in that direction and keep changing you. One man I read this week said, This is amazing. Jesus judged the reality of this man's salvation based on his willingness. No, his cheerful eagerness to part with his money for the glory of God and the good of others. Jesus commended that. He commended this shift in his thinking as the fruit of what happens when you decide to follow Jesus Christ. When you decide to follow him, you make a decision to let him come into your life and change you. That's what it means to follow him as Lord or King or boss. Jesus, you you come into my heart and you can change anything you're willing to change. And one of the key areas that he's going to change is our attitude toward our money and possessions, among other things. This is one of them. The Bible has a lot to say about money. Jesus had a lot to say about money. Because your attitude toward money and possessions is an x-ray of your heart toward God and his kingdom. You know, an x-ray, you take the picture, and then it develops, and then you can see it. Well, that's what happens with our finances. We have an attitude, we have a view of our money and possessions. That's like... The, the picture that's developing in our heart, and then it shows up in our actions and our words, how we talk about our money and how we spend it, what we do with our money. And so this is why the Bible spends so much time on it. Like John said in talking about his growth group, we spend a lot of time working. We work not just for the fun of it. <laughs> we work so that we can get money to buy what we need to survive. So we have a lot invested in our money, and our heart is very close to it. It's very tied to our money. That's why we're going to spend the next five weeks on the topic of money. Our attitude and our approach to money and things is an important way that we can honor God with our lives. And as usual, if, if we think and live the way that he wants us to, We reap the benefits. God doesn't have to do this. He made us. It's right for us to do and live the way he made us to do. But 
On top of that, he blesses us when we get in line with his way of thinking and the way he wants us to live. So the backdrop principle for this series is this. God's current provision for my life is enough. It's not the amount of money that you have, but it's the relationship you have with your money that's going to make the difference. Because God's current provision, whatever he's given you right now, is enough. 1 Timothy 6 says, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Let that soak in. There is great gain. This is priceless. Godliness, which is character that's like him, like God, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, those kinds of things. Godliness, a a Christ-like character, with contentment is priceless. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. I, I don't know about you, but I have to fight to gain that perspective. It is a war for me to adopt that kind of perspective in my life. Uh, there is enough in my heart that wants more and more that I have to fight to gain that perspective. It's a battle that goes on in me. And not only that, not only is my heart wired to want more and more, but there are people who get paid big money to make me discontent, to try to make me. They can't make me. They can try but they can't make me. But they get paid a lot of money to put up billboards as you're driving around. You see the billboards, you lock on. Oh, wow, that looks cool. That's way, that car's way better than mine. Or whatever it is, you get your billboards, you watch TV, you get the ads. Now we can skip the ads. Go on the Internet, you write an email with a certain subject line, boom, there it is right there. There's stuff you can buy. People are paid big money to create discontentment in us. So it's a battle to gain that perspective, that godliness with contentment is priceless. A few years ago, a man named Clive Hamilton wrote a book called Effluenza. I like the name, Effluenza. It says alcoholics have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol gamblers, with blackjack tables, roulette wheels, or lottery tickets. Uh, any unhealthy relationship with things like alcohol or gambling or pornography causes serious problems in our lives. Hamilton says that there's an epidemic in America because tens of millions of people have developed an unhealthy relationship with consumer goods. Things like flat screens, clothes, smartphones, computers, cookware, whatever whatever it is. Take your pick. I can take my pick (laughs) of those things. In the United States, it's interesting, there are 16 and a half square feet of, small, of, of mall space for every man, woman, and child. 16 and a half square feet for every man, woman, and child in America. More people visit the Mall of America in Minnesota than Disneyland, the Grand Canyon, and the Grand Ole Opry combined every year. This, they did a little poll that he talks about in this, in this book. And he said, what's your favorite recreational activity? You know, you'd think maybe tennis, golf, 
hockey, cycling, uh, movies, whatever. Shopping. Number one, 34%. Number one recreational activity. Have you ever had the burn for something? You know, the burn. With me, it's an actual feeling inside, like this burn, this buzz. I get, I want this, whatever it is. And I, I, I went through a time in my life when I'd get the burn for planners. It's going to be funny, odd, funny, odd. But I would get to where I, you know, I, I would want a new planner, like a calendar. And I'd get the burn for it. Because I'm, I'm kind of wired to be on an assembly line. I like that. You go to work nine, you get off at five or whatever time it is, and you're done. You leave it. You don't have to think about it. But when I went to the ministry, I was staring at 168 hours a week that I had to figure out, what am I going to do with this? And making progress in the ministry determined on my choosing the right priorities. So there's some value in this burn, but what I would do is I would you know, get a burn, and I'd say, man, that looks like a good plan. That's cool. He seemed, how do you, I'd go to lunch with somebody, and he'd tell me about his planner, and I'd look at the price on, you know, not online, sorry, that was another era, but I'd find out what the price was in the catalog or whatever it was, and I would have the burn. I was poor. I couldn't really afford that planner, but I would start thinking, how can I get this? How can I find the money to buy this planner? How can I justify getting this planner? And then I'd get the planner. Probably before I should have, I confess. I'd get the planner. You know what happened? I'd get the planner. The planner, it did nothing for me. It did nothing for me. It didn't integrate. I thought, this thing's going to bring my whole life together. It's going to be fantastic. I'm going to be able to choose the right priorities. But that thing did nothing for me that I didn't do myself. It didn't. Then you know what happened. They came out with Palm Pilots. You may not have ever heard of a Palm Pilot, <laughs> but it's a PDA. It's a personal digital assistant. <laughs> I got the burn for a Palm Pilot because it's going to bring my life together. It's going to make it happen. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to do it electronically. I got that thing. It did nothing for me that I didn't do myself. And you know, I would block out times. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to, this part of church life right here, I'm going to work on. How are we going to do this as a church from 9 to 12, Monday morning? Monday morning comes around, 9 o'clock hits. i got to be motivated to do that. I've got these blocks of time. You know, they're all cut out. But how am I going to get? I, I still had to rely on God. He's the one that gives the motivation. He's the one that's going to supply everything I need. Not that doggone planner that I had the burn for. Not the Palm Pilot. Not the next thing. But he needed to do some work in me so that I could begin to manage my time more effectively. And he's still doing the same work. It's, it's, it's a progress. It's a, it's a, a pro- project in, in the working, in the making right now. Relying on him turns out to be the key. Now, whatever it is you have the burn for right now, That is not going to bring your life together. Only God, only God can bring your life together. When you get the burn, it consumes your thoughts. You think of how great it's going to be when you have it. You you devise all kinds of financial strategies to get it. 
But whatever it is that we have the burn for, it is not going to be what we need. Only God can meet that need. He himself is the one who meets our deepest needs and gives us what we need to live the life he's asked us to live. C.S. Lewis said, God, he who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. God's current provision for my life, it's enough. It's enough for me. A relationship with God is everything we need in this life. Hebrews 13 says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. God is enough. If you're in a major financial bind right now, God is enough. He will walk through it with you. He he will be there if you'll turn to him. If you're worried about money or the lack of it or how things are going to come together or a job or something, if you'll turn to God, make him your number one priority, he will walk through that with you and he will not let you starve. If, if, If you have food and covering, be content with that. That's a battle for me. That is a tough assignment. It's a war that goes on. With this understanding as a backdrop, I want to look over three keys to financial peace. And we're going to keep coming back to these things throughout the message series. The first key unlocks the other two. The first key is this, discover my position. The Bible has a very unique position uh, for us related to our life, our money and our possessions and everything else, our relationships, whatever it is. Understanding and accepting this view is crucial to dealing with stress and experiencing financial peace. It's crucial. The Bible says that we are stewards, not owners of our life and our money and other stuff. A steward, according to Dictionary.com, which is based on Random House Dictionary, says a person who, manage another, who manages another's property or financial affairs, one who administers anything as the agent of another. The Bible makes it clear that the right perspective toward our life, our money, and our possessions is that we are stewards. God is the owner. Deuteronomy 10, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth, and all that is in it. That includes you and I. We're in this earth. He made us. He's the owner. When we recognize his ownership over our lives, we find peace. There's a major difference between a business owner and a business employee. Working for someone is stressful, but nothing like running the whole show. If you're a business owner, then all the pressure is on you to create, to produce, to manage the cash flow. There's more stress at the top of the chart than somewhere in the middle of the chart or toward the bottom. God is the owner of your life and mine. If you're a business owner, scriptural perspective is 
You're just a steward of that business. God's given it to you. It's from his hand. He's, he's allowed you the opportunity to work it. But God is the owner, and he's given us the position as steward. He, he will not back us into a corner to accept that position. He's not. God's not going to do that. He's not going to force us to take the right perspective. He, he'll allow us to try to handle things on our own. But there is no peace for those who cut God out of his rightful place as owner of their life. No peace. Only stress. And the way it works with me is I have to keep giving it over to God. God, here I am trying to take it into my own hands again. I trust you. This is the life you've given me. I'm just a steward. This is the church I lead. Not my church. It's your church. These are, these, these are, this is my family. I just want to be a good steward of the relationships you've given me. And stress dissipates when I accept my position as a steward. It dissipates. I have to keep doing that. I have to keep reminding myself and over and over again accepting my place and my position as a steward. But when I do, I find peace. Stress goes away. 1 Corinthians 4 says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. This is my role, to be faithful, to be trustworthy of the things, the opportunities, the things that God has given me. The financial tide of this economy and the world is beyond my control. I I can't control what happens with my job, my savings account, my investments, but I can trust the one who is in control. And I can set my heart to be faithful, to be trustworthy with the things that he's trusted to me. This is a daily thing with me. It's a daily thing. I have to keep checking in with God every day, and that's one of the most important things in my day. One of the most important parts of my day is to get with God, to pray, and to listen to him speak to me through his word. And he helps me maintain this perspective. God, I'm giving you this day. Would you work in it? Would you show me how to live it? I want to live it your way. And as I do that, I, I can trust him. That's a moment when I can say, God, this is yours. I trust this to you. Would you work in a way that makes you uh, look good? My daily time with him is the most important part of my day because we have to keep giving it back to God. Stress dissipates as we take our rightful place as steward. But it's something we have to keep working on because it's a battle that's raging inside of us. The second key follows the first. first one opens up the second one, which is to determine my priorities. second key to financial peace is to determine my priorities. If money and, the, and stuff is my number one priority, then I'm never satisfied. Ecclesiastes 5 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. It's a waste of time. Three things you can do with your money. Spend it, save it, give it away. The first two things make sense to people. Either we're savers or we're spenders, or I guess we could be spavers. We see a deal that we just can't help, but we've got to buy, we've got to have it. 
so we spave. It's kind of a combination of spending and saving. But uh, those two things make sense to us. To do those, spend or save, and then give the leftovers. God in the Bible makes it very clear that giving is his number one priority. If you're following God, if you're walking with him, if you're letting Jesus rearrange your thoughts and your actions, then giving should become the number one priority in your life. He has reasons for this. God has reasons for this. One, one reason is it recognizes his rightful place as owner. You give off the top, the top 10%. You give off the top. Well, 10% is kind of the standard. We'll talk about that more later on. But you, you give off the top, and it, it's recognizing, God, the whole 100% is yours. But I'm giving this as a way of honoring you and recognizing your rightful ownership in my life. Second thing it does, it cuts the nerve of our love of money. If we give first, it, it cuts the nerve. It's, it has the opportunity to really lead us away from wrapping our heart around money and things. Giving first off the top versus giving the leftovers is a step of faith. And it shows that we have the right priority. When we do that, stress begins to dissolve. Stress dissolves when I set the right priority because God's given us a promise tied to this. Matthew 6, 33 and 34. Seek first his kingdom, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I read this week about a woman who went on a fast for a year from buying clothes. And it was something that God laid on her heart. She went on this fast. She, she did this to sort of get out of the cycle of always wanting a new outfit or something new or, or whatever it is. She gave away the money that she would have spent on clothes. She decided that God's current provision of clothing in her closet was enough. Can you imagine the noise that went away in her life, the stress that went away when she, she just decided not to worry about shopping and buying clothes and looking around for the best deal? I know that many of you are sitting here saying, you know, from the bottom of my heart, I would love to make God my number one priority in my finances. I would love to give first. I want to give, I want to save, but I can't. I've made some lifestyle decisions, and now I'm stuck. I'm stuck right where I am. The question is, how do you get unstuck? Most of us are going to focus on paying off our lifestyle decisions and our choices, and then save what we can afford to save, and then give the leftovers. But you don't get out of the hole by working on the problem with the same priorities. You need God's help. You need to shift your priorities. When you decide to give first, it's the first step to letting God work on your behalf. Because of that promise I just read. Seek first his kingdom. Him, his kingdom, his righteousness. 
and all these things shall be yours as well. Jesus made that promise in the midst of a conversation about dealing with stress over money, clothes, food, whatever it is. If you'll put him first, he will come through. I've found that to be true. He is faithful to do just that. You need God's help, and when you decide to give first, it's the first step to opening the door to watching God work through your finances. There's other steps. It's not that simple. There are other steps. You've got to be faithful with the other part of your money. But it, it opens the door, and God begins to work. The third key to financial peace is to develop a plan. I am not a planner. I don't like to plan, even though I got the burn for planners. That seems kind of odd, doesn't it? <laughs> it was out of my weakness that I got the burn. <laughs> but I, sometimes I just prefer, I don't want to know reality. I don't want to know what's going on. But if you don't have, without a solid financial plan, it's like an avalanche. You can hear the avalanche behind you. It's sort of, you can hear the rumble. It's rumbling. And you're just waiting for it to overtake you and just throw you around and take you down. If you don't have a plan, that's what it's like. You can hear the rumble behind you. You you need to have a plan. Scripture is very clear on this. Proverbs 6 says that we can learn from ants. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. She's thinking ahead. The, The ant is doing the work to get ahead. This is an old cliche, but if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Never more true than when it comes to our money. It's true in a lot of areas, time management and other areas as well, but certainly it applies to our money. The Bible teaches us that we need to plan, to think through how we're going to use our money to avoid emotional financial decisions. Because it can be, it's a hard thing. It can be so emotional. We do that by developing a solid plan and working that plan, even and especially with our giving. 2 Corinthians 9, we're going to talk more about this later, but each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So you look at the ant, they're planning ahead. You look at this verse, we're to think through what we're to give. There's to be a plan involved. We're to think that he, God wants us to think through our financial habits, our patterns, and develop a plan that reflects his role, his place as owner, and our purpose in our lives. As always, if we'll do that, God brings reward because a financial plan helps me deal with my stress. If I can see the next step, and then the next step, and then the next step, there's, there's relief as I keep these things. But remember, these things fall uh, in line with one another. The first key opens the next. The stress and tension that you feel over your finances is not a money tension. It is a heart tension. When you redirect your money and your possessions, you redirect your heart. The keys to financial peace, discover your position and accept it. Determine your priority and live by it. Develop a plan that reflects your position and your priority. I'd like to wrap up the message this morning 
by asking you to think through your next steps. We always do this because in Scripture, I was just reading Matthew, Matthew 5, and Jesus was talking about, don't, don't just read the Bible or know what the Bible says, do it. So we always focus on doing it, and so we want to think through our next steps because that's what opens up our understanding as we obey God. He, he helps us get to know him better, and we see how he works more clearly, and it, it just helps us to grow. So in a moment, we're going to receive our offering. And I'd like you, if you would, to take the, the program out of your, or the connection card out of your program and complete any information you haven't yet filled out or next steps that I'm suggesting that you'd like to take. Uh, there may be others, but here are my suggestions. When the offering comes around, you can place it in, in the offering basket. But here are some suggestions. My next step, first, accept my position as a steward. I'm going to pray in a moment. In that prayer, tell God that you accept your place as steward. You want to make him the owner again. I, I have to keep giving it back to him. So we'll, we'll have an opportunity to do that. Second step, read The Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey. Great for developing a plan, a financial plan. Third, sign up for a growth group. God's going to be changing you. He wants to rearrange your priorities. Walking through with a group as you look at the Bible's perspective, God's perspective on different areas is incredibly valuable. I'd encourage you to sign up for a group. Uh, another option would be to attend the quiet time class. Most important part of your day is to get time with God and to turn things over to him. Then the final step you could take, at least the ones I have written down, are to attend the Getting Traction With Your Money. And on that outline, it's the wrong date. It says 314, but it's 34. It's Sunday the 4th at night uh, from 6 to 8. So that's another step you could take. There will be practical guidance in that seminar that will really help. If you're a first-time guest with us today, we're really glad that you're here. And... We have a gift for you. It's a book called What on Earth Are You, Are you Here For or Am I Here For? And you can pick it up. It's on the table that's a little higher to the left as you go through the double doors. Uh, we hope you pick that up and enjoy it. And we, we also hope it's helpful to you. Would you pray with me as the band comes up? Father, we thank you for the truth in your word. You are the owner of our lives. And Father, help us to acknowledge our place and accept our position as steward before you. Help us to set our hearts to live in a way that honors you as the one who made us. Help us to live our lives in a way that brings glory to you. Thank you for showing us how to live. And I ask that you'd Give us the power to take the steps you've laid on our heart this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.